ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Hey, this is uh, writer director Richard Linklater, January twentieth, two thousand and six. Many years after I shot this movie. Universal. Look at this. This is proof. This was a big studio film. I want credit for suffering the slings and arrows of a studio production. Days goes down in history as some kind of independent film. But look at that. Look at that. Universal. They own the copyright. I sold out from the very beginning. Don't accuse me of that now. Oh, they handed it off to this distributor they co-owned, Gramercy, who of course no longer exists. I knew it wouldn't last forever. I had some delusion that this film would uh, play in towns all over the country, kind of the places where I grew up. Okay, I will have to admit, this initial idea, this opening image, this music, the rumbling in of Aerosmith's sweet emotion, I had it、um, totally under the influence of drugs, under scientific supervision, of course. I was getting a lot of dental work. I think I was getting a root canal as I was writing this movie. But having a GTO judge in slow motion just kind of popped in my head in the dentist chair. So that was the beginning of my movie. It's in the script. Lee High School Rebels. There's tons of schools in the South called that. I think now they're nowadays they're making them change their flags and everything. But <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. I have to say, by about this point in the movie. I get an almost erotic thrill knowing I've eclipsed the entire budget due to the hundred thousand dollar cost of this song. I've eclipsed the entire budget of my previous film, which cost about twenty three thousand dollars. So that was the upside of making a studio film. You can actually have a budget for such things, and boy, did I blow through that budget! I mean, I ultimately came in on budget, below budget actually, but、uh, it was a struggle. The rule on this movie was absolutely everything had to fit in. Like we just dropped a camera down at this moment, and this was the reality. But it was kind of fun to be in this high school environment, just to nail the clothes, to get even the font. This is actually a better check junior high in South Austin, but it looked like a high school of, of my memories. I mean, this whole movie. I could say happened to me. It was sort of the greatest hits of my freshman year and other high school years all combined into one day. This day, I'd said it, May twenty eighth, nineteen seventy six. Kind of a little Hitchcock psycho reference here. Put the exact time. <laughs> Pink and Simone. In early my first draft, Pink didn't have a girlfriend at all, and I got a comment like, "He seems sexless." I'd written him as kind of this everyman in the middle. And,、uh, and I was like, okay, yeah, girlfriends. Hey, well, I'll give him a true teenage dilemma: multiple girlfriends, and always looking for more. Eat more possum. <laughs> That was a little outhouse the seniors had put up. But、uh, yeah, so I made added that to Pink. It's like, yeah, I remember that. The great Rory Cochran. That's a that's a hat wig, by the way. Rory had very short hair. 
it felt like a big responsibility to me. I mean, when I'm making a movie that doesn't have much of a story, even as I pitched it to the studio, like, well, what is this? What is the movie? Well, it's set in the seventies. Like that was a story point. It's set in the seventies. It's like, oh, that's interesting. You know, but I felt this obligation to the seventies in a way as, as someone who had lived through it. It's easy to go back in a kitschy way, in an ironic way and make fun of it. You can do that with anything. You can, do that with any decade. But I, di I didn't really want to do that. I, I wanted to let the fashions and everything just speak for themselves. So it's the last day of school, so there's really no assignments. You're just killing time, thinking about what you're going to do that night. This immediately shows Pink's sort of what I think the teenage condition of having friends all over the map. You know, he's got his kind of stoner friends out in the parking lot. Now he's with his journalist friends who write for the, the school paper, kind of the, the intellectuals, the witty people who aren't necessarily in the cool crowd, but he likes them anyway. No, say I promise. Jesus, I promise. There was actually my, uh, my good friend Tony Ohm actually did have this Abraham Lincoln dream. <laughs> so I, um, this whole movie, I will say, is like, the most autobiographical thing, I think, moment to moment, probably that I've ever done, but it's actually full of little character bits that came from other people. I think in the Truffaut sense, it, if it didn't happen to me, it was important it happened to someone else. So like that's Tony's dream or, you know, this motif we had of stolen kiss statues. That started off a McDonald's statue, but McDonald's, of course, wouldn't let us clear it. So I had to, we had to reconceptualize that and it didn't really work out the way I wanted. So there were a lot of elements in this that happened to someone else. That was my friend Bill Daniel. His school, they had stolen the Ronald McDonald from the drive-thru, and then they painted him up to look like Kiss, and they got busted with it. And it was kind of a subplot, so I really liked that. But I got kind of torpedoed by corporate America. That was the drag. You're trying to make something realistic, and, you know, they won't let you. You can't touch corporate America. This element to the movie, too, it, it kind of provides a through line, Pink's, you know, dilemma. This actually, you know, I, I played sports in high school. This happened at another school I was at. I spent my senior year in Houston. I lived with my dad. And uh, there was a school across our neighboring school, Sharpstown. I remember the coach made the, all the baseball team fill out these little forms, to, you know, swearing they wouldn't do, you know, they wouldn't drink or anything during baseball season. And... Um, a couple of them got caught at a party and got kicked off the teams for their best players. It just seems so cruel and kind of like, wow, I like that as a metaphor for these adults. Not only do they suppress you on every way they can, you're in their world, you know, kind of trapped in their world, but they're also legally trying to kind of tie you, you know, tie you down. I thought that was a nice little metaphor. And it, I know it happens at a lot of other schools. It just wasn't at my school, but I thought that would be something you know, most guys sign it and you just broke the law. You went out and got drunk or smoked pot or whatever you're going to do, but you signed it as a formality. Like so many things in life, you go with it. But I thought Pink could actually have a moral qualm about it. So Mike uses the word neo-McCarthyism here. It's sort of like naming names or something. You're sort of humiliated into that kind of submission by the authorities that's a vibe of the movie there's not many adults in this movie 
you know, the teacher's not around right now. You know, those thinking fairly Charlie Brownish, you know, that there's no one around. But when you do see them, they, they're kind of there as oppressive forces, you know, parents and stuff. You weren't thinking about it, were you? Gilligan's Island? It's what's called a male pornographic fantasy. Oh my. Smoking in the girls' room. This I remember we shot. It, it became a cover set. It was raining or something. And so we, we, I hadn't rehearsed this as much as I had. This was a much longer scene in the script. And we hadn't quite rehearsed it as much as I would have liked. We were building up to it. I remember it being a little, I think it's fine the way it, it is now. It's just this, Kay, Chrissy Harnos is kind of calling them on their, from a kind of feminist. I had hers in like a teenage feminist who's probably read all the books and is calling her friends on their shit. But um, <laughs> on her, their Gilligan's Islands references. But uh, it wasn't as long as I wanted. But in general, this movie, this movie, in my mind, doesn't really start until school's out. All this stuff is preamble. It sets up stories. It's tough to get a movie started. So I had a ton of material before school's was out. To me, that's where the energy really kicks in. So you're just sort of treading. But a lot of movies are like that. You're setting things up, and it doesn't really kick in. But that's kind of the metaphor here. They're, they're in the institution. Even though they're subverting it here, they're skipping out for lunch. They're running around, seemingly free, but they still kind of have to be here. So here they are trolling the junior high, kind of terrorizing the kids. This actually happened at my school. It was just a tradition in this, this town I was in that when you went into high school, and not everybody, but it was sort of your initiation. It was almost the debutante ball. It's like you qualified to be in the cool crowd, but to do that, you had to be humiliated. It was so bizarre, but it was a tradition in this town. I went to, I remember starting in fourth grade, we would go as onlookers and see it. And then, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, you just did it every, at the end of school, you would go watch the girls get, you know, freshmanized, as we called it. And then uh, finally it was your turn. You know, you were in eighth grade going into ninth and, you know, you were in the line of fire. It's open season all summer long, boys. Oh, yeah, Mitch Kramer. I had uh, two older sisters. And so the older guys were sort of gunning for me. They knew me, but they really took it out on me, too. That was the, the double-edged sword of being somewhat uh, known and because of my sisters. They really went after me, so I I put that on Mitch, that he's suffering <laughs> from his sister's popularity. Wiley's so cool, man. He was a freshman in high school with all the bad habits of a grad student. He drank coffee, smoked cigarettes. <laughs> he was very mature. I had to make him much more innocent for this movie than he really was, but he was up for it. I can't imagine this movie, really, with... A different uh, Mitch, you know, he, he sort of holds it together in that way. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah, that was always weird. Your coaches, you, you sort of encounter them in the hall. When, it's one thing on the practice field or the games, but it's always awkward uh, the other time, like how they treat you. This coach, um, Rick Mosier. He'd actually played, this guy played for the Steelers during the, you know, Jack Lambert, all that Terry Bradshaw era. He had a lot of good stories, but he was acting, and uh, he totally got this guy. 
<laughs> and this this thing, this breakdown thing, I had a coach, a football coach, Coach Alpert, who uh, passed away a few years ago. But uh, he had this line about his, his grandma could do. He's very funny, very enthusiastic, a, a really good coach. He went on to win a state championship in Texas as a head coach. But caught him earlier in his career. He was this, he was the more... I think you see this dynamic among coaches, a younger, more enthusiastic, a little more pumped up assistant coach. And then you get the heavier head coach who's kind of the enforcer, more quiet. But when he when he talks, he's he's you have to listen. He's not a bullshitter. So he's the ultimate hammer, you know. And I remember like trying to fit in as a high school guy kind of like pink you know I, I had friends you'd go out and party with on weekends and then coaches you know in a small town they become aware people tell them and people rat you out they say yeah you know link letters he's smoking pot on weekends with his friends so i i would be pulled aside and told to not hang out with certain people that they're trying to you know they don't care about the team and they want to drag me down i'm like hey these are my friends you know i just go to concerts with them you know whatever so i just remember adults kind of trying to socially engineer your life about, you know, who you're hanging out with and what you're doing, all your behavior and stuff, you know. I wasn't like a big partier, but, you know, Saturday night riding around, that's just what you did if you want to be cool. Ben Affleck makes an appearance. I think that's a great intro for his character to come barreling up in his muscle car and um, already have his board handy. We set it up, just the idea that he is flunked. It just... You hear it briefly there, but he's back for a fifth year, and he's going to kick some ass. There was a guy at my school like that. Yeah, he was like, who is this guy? He's older. He's, have you ever thought about why we play football? I mean, how many times have you gotten laid strictly because... Like, this pink's questioning everything now, even why he's playing football. You know, I had that feeling. We at practice, it's, you're getting hit hard, you're out there, it's hot. And then all these guys who, they just leave school, they go have fun. It's like, what are we doing out here? This isn't... <laughs> I don't know. Pink's going through an existential crisis, I think. I got to project on him every little doubt I ever had. But my favorite letter I ever got, you know how you get someone, you know, writes to you if, if they like your movie or something. I got one from a guy who had been in an accident and had lost a lot of his memory. I guess he was around my age. But he, he thanked me for the movie that it, it filled in his memory of a lot of stuff he knew he had lost. <laughs> I've seen people all over the country say, hey, that was my high school. And I was like, where'd you grow up? Oh, New York City. I'm like, what do you mean it's your high school? You don't ride around and pick up trucks and go to beer bus. And I, yeah, but it was it was sort of like it. I'm like, no, it wasn't. It's about high school. Of course it's like your school. You went to high school? Great. This movie's about high school. That's what that has in common. Uh, Mr. Payne? This actor, Julius Tennant, he's a wonderful actor. He used to live in Austin. He's in L.A. now. He was just in Friday Night Lights last year. I saw him as a... He was a coach of Dallas Carter. Uh, he does Shakespeare and stuff, but... Uh, you know, he's one of these great local actors, but you don't, you don't have that many parts. But I had a coach who actually told me this story right before we were... Scrim as a JV football player, we were scrimmaging varsity like our sophomore year. We were about to go get our asses kicked. And he told this story about, he, a lot of the guys back then were Vietnam vets, and they all had stories, whether it was about prostitutes or whether it was things their sergeants told them. It was always very, very lively, very colorful stories. Don't forget what you're celebrating, and that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning, aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes. 
I had to get that sentiment in there. I remember uh, a teacher actually telling us that. It was at the college level, at the college level about the slave-owning, aristocratic white males not wanting to pay their taxes. So that's the great thing about making a movie. You can just pull in the greatest hits from years and every little bit and throw it into a movie and people can be a little more knowing than they could possibly be but it works i really wondered whether i was going to use schools out here it's such a kind of a cliche it's the obvious choice and i didn't want to do it i had it in as a temp song just temporary looking for something better but then i had to kind of confront the fact i was like okay school's out i think they're probably still playing that on the last day of school it's it's kind of obvious but I said, okay, I have to, that's like the movie in general. I have to take on these cliches and just make them work because the whole thing's a cliche. You know, a teenage movie is a cliche. So I just had to make it work in my own way. But I remember having to get over that hump with, with this song. I mean, I like the song, not as much as No More Mr. Nice Guy, which we use later, but it's just such an anthem. But I said, okay, well, you just got to do it. You just got to do it. So I got over that notion of being totally original and you gotta put your own twist on it how many times do you think school's out where guys are getting paddled and running for their lives you know so <laughs> and this really was what it was like in, in my school getting out of eighth grade we were running for our lives and there was this older guy i think he was about he, he was supposed to be ninth or tenth grade but he already he was already driving but he was in junior high we, already, we all got in his car. But I was that summer playing in a league. Oh, check this out with the, you can tell this is our second take. Oh, there's more, you can see the double skid marks. So that means it's your second take on a little action thing. Like in the background, those guys are getting paddled. But uh, so the guys thing was total pandemonium, run for your life, total chaos. The women's side was very organized. Meet here, get in these trucks, do this. It was very organized, very, you know, you had these big sisters who took care of you and did all this. And they treated you horribly, but I just, it was, it had a whole different vibe. I was kind of envious of the of the, the girls because they, they would have one bad afternoon and then it was pretty much over. They might have to wear a pacifier around their neck all summer, but they quickly bonded with their big sisters and had fun all summer. Where the guys, we just ran for our lives all summer. Kristen Hinojosa, she's sort of the, you know, we, we see Mitch, Mitch's initiation into high school through Wiley's character, but in um, Kristen, you know, from, for the girls. This is the first action sequence I ever did. It's fun. It's fun to just kind of get all these shots. I, I just love the absolute glee that Ben Affleck, Cole Hauser, Jason Smith bring to being the bad guys. Look at Ben. Look at that smile on his face. Ben is happy. Look at this. They are having so much fun. And this was a really fun movie to make for the for the actors and all this kind of stuff. It was a tough movie to make on every conceivable level, but the joy was working with these guys. I love the cast. Esteban Powell. It was just fun casting. He's finding these little characters, you know. I could talk for hours about when I first met each of these people. But I remember Ben coming in, and, he, you know, Ben's smart, you know. Nothing Ben does in this world will ever surprise me because, you know, he, he could, I would vote for him, you know what I mean? He's, he's a really smart guy, but I thought, that's interesting to have him be the heavy, have him be the bad guy. I met some 
some more archetypically bad guys. Here's my Night of the Hunter homage when uh, Lillian Gish walks out with a shotgun. But I actually heard about this in my school. I didn't see it, but a guy, someone's mom pulled a shotgun on him. Because <laughs> they would beat you right up to your doorstep, you know. There are some ruffians about. And I... Oh, and uh, Mitch, Carl. Ben brings a certain... There's some ruffians about. He brings a certain, like, elevated uh, status to being a bad guy. He's, like, one of those witty villains, you know. This little... <laughs> I mean, he found a certain bliss. And then in an entire other way, Parker, she was the kind of the female antagonist, the bitch, Darla. <laughs> My first conception of Darla was more of a more of like a tough broad kind of bull dykey chick who's just brutal. And then I met Parker Posey came in and uh, I met her in New York. She was on a soap opera at the time. She hadn't been in a movie. And uh, she had such just, I mean, she's just Parker Posey. My God, I was like, oh God, what, what she could do with that part. Just, she's from the South, like Mississippi. And uh, she kind of knew this world and she, she just had so much fun with it. But I mean... It was such a gift to be able to work with this cast. So many of them, it was their first movie. Parker is just, I mean, sublime. <laughs> I remember this day, it was about 102 degrees. It was so hot in this parking lot. A lot of the music cues were scripted. I had them in mind from the very beginning. But, like, I remember waking up one morning with this song in my head and thinking, oh, that would work perfectly over this, you know, why can't we be friends? It's obvious. But I always loved this song. And this one, a lot of these songs had sort of fallen into obscurity. I hadn't heard this on the radio. It was, you know, it was one of those, it was a hit in the summer of 75 or whatever, and then it sort of went away. In addition to music being the biggest element of the movie, obviously with a big ensemble cast, I knew it would all come down to casting. And so I was setting out to find just the most interesting young actors, and I really look forward to that. I, I knew that would be where the movie lived or died. And we were sort of, as a studio film, we were sort of based in L.A. in pre-production. I mean, we shot the movie in Austin, and that was always the plan. But as far as our nationwide casting search sort of stemmed from L.A., I hired a casting director, Don Phillips, who I liked a lot. And, uh, you know, he started, you know, sending out the word and meeting people. But we, we took trips to Chicago, New York, and then we did a lot of casting local because we just didn't have it on our budget to fly in everybody, put people up, you know, per diem hotel. It's kind of a, a big deal. And um, check out the wig on the brother sitting there. That's nice. But um, I found many out of Austin of the main 24 the junior high, all the junior high boys and girls, especially, you know, Wiley and Kristen and the older people. Uh, Matthew was certainly one of the, the bigger ones we found locally. But there wasn't a lot of confidence from the studio or even Don at first of what we might find in Austin. I think they can't afford to think that way. <laughs> what am I supposed to say here? I, I don't know. I, don't I always know. told these guys, Mike, Cynthia, and Tony, I was like, okay, you guys are smart, you're cool, but your kind of wit and intelligence will not be appreciated at the high school level. In college, you'll find a bigger niche. But uh, high school, you have to sort of suffer through. 
And, um, you know, if you're not a jock, if you're not that, you're sort of a little more of an outsider. You're accepted, you're part of the group, but you're a little on the margins, you know. If you're smart, you know, that's going to get you in trouble. If you make good grades or you have a worldview, you know, that's just not sexy. But I told them they'll start getting laid in college. <laughs> the banner, Mike and Tony are this kind of Greek chorus. <laughs> um, yeah, Adam Goldberg, he was one of those. He walked in and I said, okay, you're, you're Mike. You know, I just, he opened his mouth, said about three words in a casting session. And I was like, okay, I've cast, I found my mic. Tony, however, was much harder because politically I was dealing with, you know, the studio and all these people had pretty strong opinions about Tony. He, I noticed he represented in a lot of ways a lot of the executives and people I was kind of dealing with on the movie. They had definite ideas. I had to sort of fight for Anthony Rapp a little more. But I, I think he's perfect. Anthony's a you know, wonderful actor. That's your fucking mother. <laughs> Say, man. Fuck the coaches, man. Still like Jason Smith. I met him. He, he was from Dallas. He'd been a football player. You know, Melvin here. But the truth is, and this is my attitude toward acting, is like, no, there's talent everywhere. It's just maybe some people haven't decided to make it a career. Maybe some people aren't don't have the breaks. They don't have relatives in the industry. But there's talented people absolutely everywhere. So... I, I'm open enough when I meet the right guy. I'm like, okay, yeah, no, he is the right guy. It's great when you make a period piece. In the day, it's very much a period piece. But as time goes on and new generations come along, the periods kind of start blending together. So I really think, I don't know how much farther in the future will this movie be seen as something made in the day, which is kind of what I always wanted. I wanted this to seem like a movie you made in 76, everything about it. I didn't use a Steadicam, for instance. Had I been able to get film stocks from that era, I would have. I just wanted it to look like a 70s movie, in a way. You know, blown out windows, um, just a certain style. I was very much playing off that. The way music was used in movies pre-MTV, for instance. You know, kind of a storytelling narrative element to music more along the lines of Easy Rider, Mean Streets, Graffiti, even you go back to Scorpio Rising, films like that, but pre-MTV influence. So I was very consciously looking at that era stylistically, you know, the use of slow motion, things like that. I see movies now that are, they're filmed in 53, but they're set in 43. You know, it's like, what's the difference? You know, it becomes very subtle as time goes on. So Sabrina's, I wrote this, like, she's kind of on the other side of the tracks. You know, she's not popular. She has no older siblings. They don't know who she is. She's just sort of fallen into this. And I had it written, actually, that she doesn't even live in this house. She walks down to her real house, which is kind of a more dumpy house, but she got dropped off there because she was ashamed of her house. Real, uh, you know, after-school special kind of thing. But I remember my, my mom visiting the day we were shooting that, and she didn't put it together that, oh, that was my house, you know? Like, I lived in this <laughs> dumpy house, and I didn't, you know, that I had that kind of shame. But, uh, you know, I didn't want people dropping me off at my house and stuff. But she didn't, my mom, I don't think she got that. And I know she'll never listen to this commentary track, so. <laughs> hey, Mom, sorry. Okay, this room, 
Pickford's room is exactly designed after a friend of mine's room, up to the ice pick that was a lock. He had the kind of a moon chair, Alice Cooper posters, blacklight things. It's a buddy of mine, Carl, who I remember going over there. I don't think he had a dad in the house, but that was Carl. There really was a guy in my life, um, Keith Pickford, who was a really good friend. But, I mean, this whole movie, this is a sort of a shout-out to him, obviously. I mean, Keith didn't have a dad around who busted parties, but Keith was, like, the coolest guy. He had always had a good car, always had it going on, you know, always knew where the party was. And... Uh, so I had, he would naturally be the one hosting the big end of school party. So again, we see the, the adult kind of thwart and throw the whole plan into disarray. So when the party gets busted, it throws a wrench in everyone's social plans. So they're kind of drifting there for a while so they can get it together to have another party somewhere else. My whole working kind of premise was like nothing really changes in teenage world. You know, you're still... Things, there's a continuum that goes from the entire post-war era through the present day that the dilemmas are the same, the relations are very similar. There's nothing really that different. The pop culture landscape changes a little bit, but what it's like at that age range in relation to your parents, friends, school, team, you know, whatever, that's kind of a constant. Start unpacking. We're not going anywhere. Who says this movie's plotless? It's full of little, you know, see, that's a plot thing. It sends it that way. I don't know. I think, in a way, this is this is sort of this free ride. The movie sort of starts here, in a way, for me. I mean, they're really, now night is coming. Now, like, this kicks into, uh, let's say, second or third gear. I love doing these ensemble things. You have to always be kind of juggling and keeping up with everyone. We saw Mila Jovovich painting the kiss statues. I cut out the whole thing about them actually stealing them. We had them outside of savings and loan. That was my compromise when I couldn't get Ronald McDonald. I should have just dropped it as a subplot, but I like the idea of them painting something like kiss members. So <laughs> that was McConaughey's first little bit he ever filmed driving in there. Cause you know, he's not in the uh, school. So we meet him in, in the nighttime pants were so tight i do remember girls actually with pliers getting their zippers pulled up <laughs> not in my household my older sisters didn't do that but i remember another guy saying his his sister did that <laughs> these four guys they're so funny Showing up for the party. <laughs> that guy with the bong in his hand. He was sort of cast as like stoner number three or whatever. He's sort of around, but. <laughs> I actually played on a, um, a summer league team that I, I played with the older guys. So I was actually on a team with my seniors. So this, I just did this to get the division. But in my life, I was actually on the team. So my last day of school, I think it was that day I had a practice, and all the guys who were my seniors busted me right after our practice. 
you know, I mean, talk about a sitting duck, but that's not very dramatic. So I had, I like the idea of these guys having thus far avoided the inevitable, but it was important for me. I wasn't a pitcher, but I thought it was important that Mitch be a pitcher. It's just more active and kind of standing out in the field. Poor Wiley. He so wasn't a, a baseball player, but you know, we managed. I told him, just give me, give me your game face. You'll, you'll be tough here. I remember this being a particularly difficult night to shoot. We had one night to shoot all this, and it was summer, so the night it doesn't even get dark till about 10.30, and it starts coming up around 5.30. And I had so many shots I wanted to get. This was particularly grueling. I had so many ideas on how I want to shoot this slow motion here, and, you know, just so much stuff. It was just every day was a chore. Every day was nerve-wracking. Had to work very quickly working around everything, so. This was hell. I remember at lunch, Jim Jack's my producer, saying, well, we can't shoot that shot about, you know, good game. That doesn't really move the story forward. We can't do this. We can't do that. Every day on this movie at lunch, it was like, okay, here's all you can't do after lunch. It was hell. But, you know, sometimes what motivates you on a scene isn't the storytelling, but kind of the essence or a, a just a memory or a, a moment. And, uh, for me, in this game, it was the good game, good game after. I mean, everybody who grew up playing sports, they still do that. You just, it's so by rote, you know, good game, good game, good game. So I had this big sequence, but yeah, it doesn't really tell a story or do anything, but it's kind of the flavor of the whole scene. And so I remember having to really fight to even get to shoot that. It's like, oh, okay, you can shoot it, but you got like 12 minutes to do the whole damn thing. So that's how this whole movie was. It's very frustrating. I mean, if I really think about it too much, uh, that I get a really warm feeling on the back of my neck <laughs> that I haven't had since in filmmaking. I mean, it's it's always tough, but this film for me was particularly hell because it was my, while technically my third film, I had done a very low-budget Super 8 film. I'd done a total off-the-grid indie film, Slacker, for like no money, no authority, and then, and then to jump into the studio Shark Tank, you know, with them giving me $6 million to make this movie, which... I'm, of course, eternally grateful to have the opportunity. I mean, this movie definitely couldn't be made today, I don't think, especially with no big stars or anything. And, and that was what ultimately they didn't like about the movie. It didn't have any stars in it, you know. They didn't have a way to market it. And, of course, the backdrop to this is the, uh, you know, fucking bicentennial is everywhere. If you were alive, then you were getting it shoved down your throat. So it's, it's everywhere at that point. <laughs> this is a particularly brutal sequence where, and it, you had to do it, you know, where Wiley's just getting pounded. But uh, <laughs> I remember my script supervisor saying, I just love it, the homoerotic tones of you know, these guys obsessed with each other's butts and paddling them. And I was like, really? Is that what it's about? And I go, I guess you're right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just remember the, the pain involved. It was... It hurt. These guys would, like I show earlier in the movie, Cole Hauser's fixing his paddle, drilling little holes in it and stuff. I mean, guys would do that. They would perfect the paddle for the most pain. And then they'd have to decorate the paddle. And then you'd have to sign it. Had Melvin had a, on his paddle, his sole pole. Ben's, my uh, cameraman, Lee Daniel, had a great, he, he had the idea. You see that fuck you, F-A, 
<laughs> then a cue. That was his idea. So everyone who worked on this movie had a lot of fun with the details because all of us were in our late 20s, early 30s. We had all kind of been around at this moment in history. So my whole crew, we all like had specific memories of this time period. And we were trying to be as accurate as possible, of course. So everybody got to contribute in any way they wanted. But yeah, I remember, I remember guys really enjoying like beating the hell out of you. I don't know. I just thought it was stupid. So I wanted that sort of represented in pink. I was asking him, like, would you paddle him? He goes, oh, yeah, I definitely hit him once. Some guys are worse than others, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, I got to go home and change. I'll catch up with you, okay? All right, all right, man. See you later. Hey, kid, take care of that butt. Hey, guys, hold up. As the freshmen are being initiated <laughs> in this movie, I was being initiated into studio filmmaking. And, uh, you know, you try to survive your summer intact. And that's that was my goal. But, uh, yeah, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, it was sort of my, my boxing match that makes or breaks you as a fighter. And I sort of survived it. I don't know if I won or if there was a draw. I felt I won. <laughs> but it was the sort of bonding things. Guys would bust you and you know like I said I played in, on summer league baseball teams with older guys but uh yeah it was the guy who busted you the worst maybe not the worst but a guy who just went through the motions hit you and then you know you'd hang out with him he'd take you out drive you around because at that point in a rural America you, you don't have a car you need to be able to get around so it was all about the cars all about driving around so you needed a ride everywhere you were sort of dependent on older people you know, the kindness of the <laughs> the older people wanting to either drop you off or pick you up or, you know, so it was all about the car. If you listen closely, you have Frampton Comes Alive going in the background, which, of course, at this moment in history, May of 76, that's all you would hear on the radio. That little voice box thing he had going, and uh, that that album was just everywhere. So I was really glad to be able to get the rights. I mean, this movie to me started with the music. Like I said, I I got I went back and got all the music as I was writing the script, and each song, you know, as music does, evoked so much, so many memories, such a feeling. It just put me back there so strongly. It was it was great, but uh, you know, I, I found a certain affection for all this music I'd sort of kind of put out of my mind for <laughs> to a large degree. I was like, I like that album. I think that album's great, you know. I just, I found an affection. So I remember being that age, and music articulated everything you couldn't really say. It was just what you felt. You crank up your music, it, you know, it meant so much to you. It sort of, it, it did all the feeling and talking for you. The Lowrider was my handle, on my CB radio handle, my freshman in high school. Even though I didn't have a CB radio, you could still have a handle. That was my handle, the Lowrider. Here's my homage to American Graffiti. Got to put the 50s car in there, but technically I don't remember a lot of guys having that kind of thing. I mean, the best car you could have is what Clint has right here, Nikki Cat, a, a Trans Am. A new Trans Am would be the, the top, you know, that's the best you could ever get. But uh, you have to you have to be rich, you know. You can't. I had a fucking two hundred dollar Volkswagen, but um. I think it's funny. I mean, 
I think it's my later taste in muscle cars or liking that. I remember some guys had those, you know, project cars, muscle cars. Parker, Joey, and Dino actually wrote this scene. I told them I need more female bonding scenes, but you know. They had an idea about this note. You know, I said, well, you know, in rehearsals, I was always trying to encourage us to come up with more material. My main motivation, I think, was to capture just the energy of being a teenager, what it was like kind of in that moment-to-moment reality, kind of looking around for something to do, trying to be cool, and not much really going on. But I still wanted to capture the essential boredom of being a teen and, and trying to find something to do. I just want to do it, you know what I mean? I mean, it sounds good and all, but I just have to confront the fact that I really don't like the people I've been talking This was kind of a, a typical dialogue of my, my own poker group consisting of Mike, Tony, Jack, Terry, all the guys, John, Jim, Leslie. You know, we would get together on weekends, play poker, talk politics. You know, we imagined ourselves a little intelligentsia of, of our little town. And... You know, there was a lot of aspiration in that group, guys talking about law school and stuff. I think I barely qualified because I was sort of a jock, but, you know, I did write on the newspaper staff. And I... Say, man, you got a joint? <laughs> Matthew says to this day, people come up to him and, and ask him, hey, Matthew, you got a joint? It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> that line, be a lot cooler if you did, was a friend of mine in Montana said that <laughs> once. I just remembered that. Okay, here we go. The Emporium. In my town, there really was a pool hall called the Emporium. And years later, my mom moved back to that town after being away for a decade and a half. And I got a, actually a, a pool table light from the original Emporium. But then I had to go get a pool table and a game room. But uh, this, I remember walking in the Emporium listening to... Dylan's Hurricane. It was on the jukebox a lot one summer, or for a long time, I guess. I remember walking in a little younger, thinking like, wow, this is cool. Look at all these older people. So this is, so much of this is Mitch's perspective. Like he's being introduced to this world for the first time. It kills me that guy spinning his foosball. I told these guys like, hey, at this moment in history, foosball was a sport. Okay, there were tournaments. It wasn't a game. It was a sport. People took it really serious. You didn't just fart around. You got good at it or you didn't play. And you didn't spin little your guys around. It was all about setting up shots. and It was serious. So I tell all the extras, like, don't be spinning the guys around. You know, take this shit serious. And it kills me. Like that one angle, some dipshit extra is spinning it. And I'm just like, ah, I want to kill him. <laughs> it's that kind of detail. I enjoyed shooting those foosball shots and later the pinball shots with the a special attachment to the lens, you could get that extreme close-up. I like Wiley's line here. What grade she in? Like, that's what you asked, and it was never how old anyone was. It was like, what grade? You were totally divided by grade, so. 
In this little incestuous town I lived in, it was just small enough. There were about 300 people in our class. But like through junior high and high school, like the women totally controlled everything as far as who was with who, but we'd have these parties on weekend, these junior high parties, which we'll see here in a bit. You know, it was always like, oh, so-and-so has a crush on you, and you'd kind of be with them that weekend. So it was always, you'd notice someone smiling at you, and you'd be with them that night, and the next night they'd be with someone else, you know, kind of. Hey, man, has got a duel about the burn. Are you with us? <laughs> Think about it. Yeah. So, so much of this is Wiley's initiation, but also, I remember this being an issue, like my, my freshman year, like I came into that really straight, you know, class vice president or president, you know, that kind of student council guy, athlete. And I got to high school and I realized, oh, the cool guys who I want to be like, wow, they actually do smoke pot. Like I had no urge to smoke pot. I had no interest, you know. And yet I realized, oh, wow, if I'm going to be cool like them, I kind of have to do that a little bit, you know. <laughs> okay, yeah, if I'm with those guys and they have a joint, I better smoke it. You know, it's just like the ultimate in peer pressure. I, no. Crank it up. This Foghat song was supposed to be a ZZ Top Thunderbird from the Fandango album. The absolute kernel for this movie, in my memory, was a night in 1975. Freshman in high school, driving around in South Houston, cities like Laporte, and uh, with my buddy, uh, my best friend down there, Mark DiSclefani and his Le Mans. He had this hopped up Le Mans. And one night, I think we drove at the odometer. We never really left the city area, but we drove about 160 miles. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a couple tanks of gas, everybody pitching in. And we listened all night to ZZ Top's Fandango, this one album, which is only about a 30-something minute album, 38-minute album. It would just click between tracks and go over and over. And that was my first concert. I had just seen ZZ Top. And that album was just so fantastic. It was on all night. And so when I started thinking about this movie, I was thinking like, yeah, riding around. Actually, my first idea, you know, it was more of an experimental idea, not a studio film, but to set the entire movie in the car. Like you would go through the eight track a couple times and it would just ride around and you never really leave the car, maybe to get gas or other cars pull up and you interact and that would be my teenage movie highly conceptual so it started there it started there it was so wild to be able to just go back and recreate these moments from your past like the junior high party i must have gone to a hundred of these parties there was one every weekend whether it is at the catholic rec center or someone's house and it was usually the same music we had a lot of good sappy ballad so you could dance slow you know you could which is basically just hugging and then there'd be this pile of bodies whether in another room or in a corner for the people who had kind of taken it to the next level are going to decide to just make out all night you know <laughs> so to recreate that it was just hilarious you know the tall girl with the short guy and and this whole thing there was always some chaperones you know they really hated you leaving and you can't leave and come back you had to stay there because they were afraid you'd go out get drunk. They didn't want any coming back. So that was always the thing. If you leave, you can't come back. It's like, eh, fuck you. You were getting there. But these guys, I like that they're kind of celebrating it was their last junior high party. They're ready for the big time of high school where they're going to be getting laid. It's all going to be great. 
course, the high school guys are looking forward to college, where it's all going to be great and they'll get laid a lot. But, um, <laughs> yeah, casting everyone, not only would I cast their um, music taste, I'd, I'd tell the actors, like, okay, here's what you're really listening to. You know, and I'd also do it with the cars. You know, you'd think of someone like, what kind of car would they drive? You know, Jody, I thought, oh, yeah, VW, you know, convertible. That'd be really cool for her. And guys, which kind of cars they have, who'd have a, you know, O'Bannon's duster here, kind of a project car. I, I sort of, I gave all the guys pretty cool cars. You know, Pink's got his El Camino. Benny's got his truck. Wooderson, of course, has got that badass Chevelle. Pickford's got the judge. This is pure teenage fantasy land, you know. The reality of it is a lot of guys, you can't afford it. You just don't have money, so you, you can't have those badass wheels. But, you know, some guys could. You worked your life away at the, you know, service station or whatever to afford your car. But I was never that guy, never, you know. I drove either a hand-me-down or a crappy Volkswagen, but I, I could fantasize. So it's fun to go back in time and, and kind of make things right. <laughs> So this was very real if you were a eighth grade guy. Everywhere you went, you never know. You know, must real food chain kind of stuff. You were someone's prey, and they could get you at any moment. And it was all kind of sanctioned and tolerated. That was the worst thing, you know. It was sort of like, well, that's just the way it is. This always gets a big laugh, and the whole this, this whole trunk as ice chest idea. I like that visual thing. A bit extreme, but <laughs> kind of true. I remember guys doing that. Maybe not a trunk quite that big, but um. Yeah. Why? Just give me a beer. Get out of here! I said. Yeah. I love the way the the guys bonded. You know, Kohlhauser, Sasha Jensen here, Ben. They really, you know, they really uh, got their own dynamics going. I just think Cole's, like, fantastic. There's just no one else like him. Last fucking day of school, no fucking party, no fucking... Like, it's funny, the frustration. Like, look at O'Bannon. He's just had his day. He's just busted a guy. you think he'd be happy. He comes back, ah, it fucking sucks. You know, just that forever, forever disgruntled and looking to kick some ass. If you listen closely there... You wish, asshole! That's my cameo. I did that on an ADR stage as we were doing it. <laughs> I had a part in the movie, but I kind of cut myself out before I even shot it. So. I've got 411 posi track out back, 750 double pumper, Edelbrock intakes, board over 30, 11 to 1 pop-up pistons, turbojet 39... Okay, this entire scene, we filmed at lunch. You know, we were sort of at war with our schedule. And I was looking for more things for McConaughey, because in the original script, he, he didn't have that much, really. And uh, I saw how he was sort of coming to life. And uh, Lee Daniel, we sort of worked up a scene around his car talking about the, you know, Lee's a total, you know, gearhead. So we worked up this dialogue, and Matthews wasn't a big car guy, but he sure sells it. Nicky Cat actually is a car guy, so he came up with a lot of his lines there. But I pissed off all the ADs and everything, shooting that at lunch. You know, I got the camera people and the sound people, you know, come out and do it. Really? Yeah. Like how bad? Bad. 
Was it O'Banion? Similar to the high school environment, the, the men sort of, you know, the guys sort of dominate, you know, just by sheer testosterone and physicality. They sort of dominate everything. They talk the loudest, the most, and it's a different vibe. And I found that actually happening with my movie. The guy sort of took over. I sort of feel like I failed to some degree with my ambitions for, for the female stories. You know, they got cut down much more, and I don't know. It's just I think maybe they were more conceptual on my part rather than real, something I had lived. And for all you people who take a drink of beer or whatever at the moment while he touches the bridge of his nose here, I take full responsibility. That was my—I liked it because it was an awkward thing, and I thought it was a very awkward moment here. He's out with these guys. He's, there's his sister right by him. Here's this girl from his class, and he's out of place, and he's feeling awkward. So it's not Wiley's fault. It's, if you don't like it, it's fucking my fault. So take a swig on that. Face it, you got busted because you couldn't get away. You try and outrun Ben and those guys. I'm gonna be laughing. My this is based on a, a guy, uh, Ray Hicks. I remember him doing it. He'd always we'd be walking, grab a bottle out of a trash, and we'd all have to run because he'd throw it and often throw it at us, throw it up in the air. Another thing that pisses me off about our corporate, like if you notice closely, I often had the actors cover up the label of the beer. Like I wanted Schlitz because I remember drinking Schlitz. And they were like, no, you can't. Teenagers drinking, driving, they'd read the script and go, no. And I'm like, man, I'm trying to give you guys a chance to come back. At this point in history, you're the number one beer in the world or in the country. And then now you're 16th. There's a reason you're 16th. Let us use your beer in the movie. And they're like, no, no. No one would touch us at all. So we, I had to get some defunct labels from Central Texas. One was Grand Prize. So you see that? I tried to get as many different handshakes as I could. What we saw there was a, <laughs> one of the more uh, extreme ones. But uh, I think I'd, I've never done a count of how many different handshakes. Oh, Renee Zellweger walking by. Renee's in the movie. She's kind of everywhere, usually near Parker, but uh, didn't technically have any lines. She was kind of our most featured extra and practically a member of the cast. She, I met her kind of late in the whole game. She'd been a student at UT, just like uh, Matthew. No, man, no, man, That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. Concerns me I could write such a line, but... Uh, you guys want to go for a spin? Yeah. Shotgun. Yeah, Matthew, the way he sort of just took off, I mean, this movie, the day he started was at the top notch. Uh, he drives through there and he does a scene that's coming up. Um, just, I felt everything kind of coalesce that night. You know, he just brought something to it. It just perked everybody up. He was sort of the embodiment of something. I mean, my first concept of Wooderson was much more sleazy, kind of a guy who was a little more, you know, like creepy. But Matthew brought a certain charm, dignity, I think, to it that he's still, some people do find it sleazy that he's out there kind of trolling for high school girls. He's a little older. But uh, I don't know. I think he took it to some realm I couldn't have imagined. And his part kept expanding. You know, I wanted more of him. And, and I wasn't alone. You know, the whole cast, I could just tell. Okay, now this is, again, very autobiographical. This same night, riding around in Mark DiSclefani's Le Mans. We were busting mailboxes. I remember there was a couple joints going around. And it was just like, wow. I was a freshman in high school. He was a junior. 
But it's like, wow, high school life, property destruction. I'm a real teenager now. We're creating a... <laughs> uh, but this busting mailbox trick, you know, you see mailboxes now, they're all like bricked in with it. You just, they're made kind of fortresses. Any schmuck who would just have a mailbox on a pole is asking for it. But um, it was great fun to just raise hell in a neighborhood. But it actually did happen to me that we did this once, not on this particular night, but later, a couple years later, I was farting around. I was a senior in high school by that point and um, hanging out with a whole other set of guys in Houston where I went my senior year in high school. A lot of this, I keep mentioning Huntsville, but a lot of this to me, I went my senior year in Houston. And this next bit was my... Uh, my good buddy Danny Lamar had stolen a bowling ball from a uh, bowling alley. And we were driving down 610, a big freeway, not far from our neighborhood. And um, he just threw the bowling ball out of a window. It hit the curb on the side of the freeway, bounced about 40 feet in the air like a Super Bowl and went into a neighborhood. And I was like, oh, my God. So we went down there looking for it and it had gone through the windshield of a Cadillac. And we just ran out of there and took off. So... <laughs> But I like that, uh, you know, Mitch is now he's accepted because he's he's created some property damage. He's now one of the guys. It's sort of sad, his whole initiation. He has to talk bad about women sexually. He has to wreak some havoc, some property damage to be initiated. You know, it's sort of like you hear the myths of like gangs to be a gang member. You have to have killed somebody. You know, it's like, wow, you know, to really qualify, you have to have proven how bad you are, you know, so. <laughs> And this actually happened too, like so much in this movie, where yeah, I was with these guys, and they said they were gonna what we called wahoo the beer, which means just steal it, you know, run out, grab a sixer, and just sprint out of the store. We said that, and uh, and of course paid for it, but just kind of created the whole scene. So I had that, I worked that in together with actually getting busted. Like this night we were riding around busting mailboxes, a car pulled up behind me and I was driving this buddy of mine's Challenger, this such a fast car. And we ended up in a hundred a high speed chase. This guy, I was driving down Derry Ashford in Houston, and I'm surprised we survived, because this guy had a gun. He pulled up beside us. He'd caught us sort of busting his mailboxes. And I didn't really know where it was gonna end. And ended up with him running us off the road and kind of denting in this car. But uh, this is Fred Lerner, my stunt coordinator. Great guy. I've, I've worked with a couple times. But uh, he kind of wanted to play this part. I needed a guy to take a tumble here, like how they get out of here. So This is actually an insert of my own 68 GTO. It's not really in the movie very prominent. It's sort of an extra car. But those close-ups there I got in, in post with my own car. That's when I was falling in love with my car. I bought it later. So. <laughs> Fairly uneventful, huh? I love the idea of Mike, Cynthia, and Tony driving around. Something they probably don't do that much. You know, they kind of go to houses, play poker talk they probably don't go out that much so here they are and they don't really know what to do they don't go to the emporium because they don't feel comfortable they just drive around and talk listen to a little music you know i actually had a funny sequence during a montage where they steal they go into someone's garage and grab some beer and i had it going to a jethro toll 
flute solo. And it was really hilarious, but uh, it just didn't really, that part didn't really fit in. This is my fireball machine. I still have it, by the way. I bought it for the movie, and it was my favorite uh, pinball machine as a kid. Fireball, which technically probably wouldn't be at the Emporium in 1976. It would have been there in 74, 73, 74, but it was the first multi-ball game, or just a classic. It was fun to shoot those kind of close-ups. And I love pinball. There should be pinball in every movie. After Mel gives Wiley the money there and tells him to go get a sixer, O'Bannon in the script shows up and grabs his hand and pries the money out of his hand. I was kind of inspired by uh, Los Alvadados in the Bunuel movie where the guy gets the money from a guy and he gets it stolen from him. O'Bannon steals the money, but then Mel comes back and talks him into, hey, man, you're fucking with my six-pack. You know, he's like, okay, kid, you can go. But uh, we were going to shoot that, and then O'Bannon wasn't there that night. The ADs had screwed up and uh, told him he wasn't working that night. I'm like, he's got lines. What do you mean he's not here? (laughs) It was just that kind of screwed up production. I think the ADs pretty much hated uh, myself and my cameraman and everything. (laughs) That's Kahani Korn, who uh, was shooting a making of. Now a Daily Show producer. This is based on me buying alcohol for the first time my freshman year in high school. And a guy at the Emporium just gave me a five bucks and said, hey, go go get me a six-pack. And I was like, could I? He says, i just try. And, of course, I think they were just selling to, to minors. They weren't even caring. But uh, I kind of dramatized this thing. David Blackwell, this local actor who's a real character. I, I love him. We worked up this whole scene, but I, I like the idea of... Uh, you know, Wiley repeating the lines he heard Wooderson say. But uh, David came up with this. Eda Green, he's giving advice to, you know, the the pregnant woman who's buying alcohol and smoking. On this night, Wiley touched her, her fake pregnant belly and said, this is me. <laughs> At this point in history, I guess he was not quite born yet. But he says, hey, this is me. You know, I, I like that idea. His mom's smoking and drinking. Hey, man, you over at the Emporium? It's funny how the little hierarchy shifts immediately. Like, now that Wiley's hanging out with the older, cool guys, he's like, ah, Sixer. You know, it happens very fast that he's at a high school level. Now, this is all teenage fantasy here. My own little retrospective uh, wish fulfillments that, that you could actually, actually get these guys back for all the pain they're inflicting on you because it, uh, it never happened, you know. But in this movie, it did so that they could actually be some scheme to get back the, the bad guys like O'Bannon and stuff. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got it. Woo. Answer changed. I don't worry about it, man. I remember walking in the Emporium with that six-pack of beer after I bought it, and some girl asked me, they sold it to you? And I'm like, you know, she was like a junior in high school. I'm a freshman. I'm like, yeah, of course they did. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man. You know, what's the deal? Nashville, party at the Hey. Good game, man. You too. Y'all are an embarrassment to the sport of pool, and you should be proud that I even let you play at my table. You are the worst pool player. If you listen to these off-screen lines here, we did all this in um, ADR sessions. Ben kind of came up with all this. We were, we were talking about, like, just keep humiliating this guy. So I've had people come up to me and say, talk about that. Like, yeah, what he's saying there? It's really funny. But he's like, <laughs> I just love that. Okay, homo, you're about to taste it. 
I had so much fun with this. Ben would come up to me and says, you know, we're all wondering which character is you here, Rick? I think you're O'Bannon. Like, we're just having too much fun with this character. I'm like, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm not O'Bannon, but who can't find glee in the bad guy? For years, Ben would say, yeah, I was the only bad guy in that movie. Like, no, you weren't. There's tons of bad guys in this movie. Or good guys, you know. You always like the bad guys. So I think he's a great guy. Loves you. Sasha Jensen is so smooth. I remember meeting him like he's a little older, but older and wiser than the rest of the cast. He's actually technically older than Matthew, but he had this sort of joy about he seemed like an older guy, like when I was in a freshman or so, who kind of had it all figured out. You know, some guy who was smooth, knew what to say. And, and they never really give you point blank lessons like that. But in this movie, they could. I just had in mind he was that guy who just sort, sort of had it all figured out in a different way than Wooderson has it all figured out, you know. Everyone thinks they have it all figured out, but in their own ways. You haven't had any licks yet, This scene actually got us in trouble. It's a long story about the language in this movie, but I was getting a lot of shit for how much cussing there was. They were in some delusion about this could be a PG-13 movie if we had less cussing. I'm like, are you kidding? Teenagers drinking, driving... Smoking pot? This is an R-rated movie, but they, well, less. Maybe there could be less. You know, they're afraid we were going to offend people. So, uh, <laughs> here's a good angle at Ben's paddle, the fuck you paddle. It's a, it's a good privileged angle. So, obviously, I think we did one take here, and we made it work. And Ben totally plays this. And this is really hard to be the recipient of this. And we just kind of let it roll. And the soundtrack here is uh, a Black Oak, Arkansas song, Lord Have Mercy on Muscle. Pretty obscure song, but, but that's fun when you do a soundtrack. You can bring a song that, it wasn't a hit. You know, Jim Danny, The Rescue was a bigger hit, but it worked there. I love that song. Walk to the Halls of Karma. <laughs> Made a deal with the devil and God. I always found this scene kind of sad. Been humiliated. I don't know. This location's right there on uh, North Lamar in Austin. It's still, I, I picked this Emporium location because exactly like the Emporium in Huntsville, it was a parking lot that you wouldn't have to, it was a drive-through parking lot, kind of a loop. So you could keep driving around. Everybody would park there. Someone said, if you had paint all over yourself, would you really get back and fuck up your interior like that? But I said, no, Bannon's not thinking like that. I think he'd go home and get a shower. Come back to the Moon Tower party. The top notch. Of course, I wanted Sonic was the national chain that we cruised the Emporium to the Sonic, Emporium to Sonic. That was the route in my town. But of course, Sonic wouldn't let us use. So we got a local merchant, the uh, top notch, a famous place in Austin. I was really happy they let us do it. You can only do the mom pop stores, but... Honestly, this is Matthew's first lines he's ever uttered in, on film. He's, he's very proud of this to this day. Yep, that was my first night when he comes in. All right, all right, all right. There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. And this scene is largely improvised. I um, had a dilemma. I needed somehow to let these three even know there was a party at the Moon Tower. Like, how do you get them there because they're not at the Emporium? I need to let them know. And I remember my sister saying... 
oh, you know, Marissa's so cute with her red hair. Wouldn't it be neat if she had some, you know, some guy interest? You know, she was pulling for her. I was like, yeah. Then it was like, well, what if Matthew started flirting with Marissa? They could. So that was the setup this evening. I kind of redesigned. This isn't in the script, but it's like, okay, here's what the goal of the scene. We need to let them know about the party at the Moon Tower and set up this flirtation. But beyond that, we, we worked up this whole scene and it was it was really fun. I was going around to, to Matthew saying, like, talk about her red hair. And then um, and this whole thing that she would be kind of attracted to him in some strange way and the guys would be repulsed. I just, you know, it was, it was awesome. So we're going to still go? <laughs> yeah, what the hell? I guess. The damn kiss statues. <laughs> On one take, these things fell out of the car. The wind took them and knocked off one of their heads, and it was sliding down the road. <laughs> Here, the old, the challenge for the cars. I'm gonna blow your doors off. It was always these little races, you know, when you're in the fast cars, you know. I was taken out of most of that because I had a Volkswagen or a Fiat or a station wagon, whatever I was driving. I never had the muscle car. By the time we shot this in 92, set in 76, 16 years before, like half the bands that are featured in the day soundtrack were on tour that summer. They never really went away. The baby boomers, rock and rollers, Rolling Stones kind of thing, they're gonna take it all the way to the grave. They're not gonna go away if we haven't understood that by now. <laughs> they're not gonna let the whole culture change and leave them behind. So that was part of my point was this film, although the fashions and some, some things scream out 76, a lot of it screams out 1992 and a lot of it still screams out 2006. You know, some things never change. That was my point. So here we are at the uh, at the Moon Tower. In my town, it was really a fire tower, which in the East Texas woods is a real thing. I think it was a they had a platform, a tower that you could do a fire watch. But in Austin, there are all these things called moon towers, and you know we needed a source of illumination. You know, like where where does all the light come from? So I brought an Austin concept into into this, and we actually built a little moon tower. Let's hear it for our little budget. But uh, much shorter, though. It was only like 40 feet tall. The real ones are like 165 feet tall. So we called it Moon Hinge. It was so short when we looked at it. It was like, oh, God, we couldn't really photograph it. It was a joke. It was looking so short. There's always a guy like Clint lurking around like, hey, man. Nikki Cat was the only actor who came in, and most of them kind of related to pink. You know, I didn't, I wasn't meeting people for specific parts. I was just meeting people in general and was going to match them to parts. Nikki Cat actually came in. I said, well, who'd you relate to in the script? Who do you like? And he's kind of he's like, I like Clint. I like Clint. He's, he's such a good actor. He, he probably could have been in any number of characters. But, uh, <laughs> but the fact that he wanted to play Clint, I thought would take it to some new level. And uh, this kicked off something between he and Adam this confrontation, this scene, they became, I mean, building up to the big fight at the end. It was, <laughs> it was intense, man. But they sort of bonded for life, I think, like so many of the cast in this, in this movie. I think I'm really proud they're still friends and in each other's movies. You know, Adam's directed a few movies and 
and they're all, you know, they act in each other's movies, and it's, it's great. This place used to be off limits, man, because some drunk freshman fell off. You went right down the middle, smacking the his myth head of the moon tower. Man. I hear it doesn't hurt after the first couple. Of it's it's fun the way teenagers kind of come up with their own space. It's not official space, You're dead, man. You're but so dead. you know, a place of their own. Whether it's out in the woods or it's a cul-de-sac or a place, you know, they're always going to have a space that's outside of official sanction. You know, that that they can just be themselves. Super dominant male, fifties greaser uniform. I wouldn't suggest that, Mike. <laughs> I think this also, this whole storyline of Mike getting his retribution on Clint also probably falls into teenage fantasy land, like the times I was in that position. I, I don't, I think I just brooded. This is my older self actually thinking, I wish I would have had the wits about me. And it doesn't totally work out for Mike, but maybe it does. <laughs> what he thinks here is, is for me a much older person's perspective on this youthful humiliation. You know, like, hey, this is going to make me, that's my, my actual ineffectual nothing the rest of my life, thinking about maybe what I could have done back then. <laughs> and uh, it's fun to kind of revisit the, that stuff. So much of this movie, I was, I was feeling like I was revisiting not just funny parts, but pretty pretty dark areas of adolescence and and just growing up. It, was, it wasn't smooth at all it was I mean that's why I can't look back nostalgically at this age or this time I mean it's tough to be a teenager anytime but I couldn't look back too nostalgically I mean I think just that you film something and make a movie about it it makes it nostalgic but I was certainly not trying to be I mean we openly acknowledge the 70s as, as Marissa says you know <laughs> the 70s obviously suck maybe the 80s will be cool you know but uh at the time, we were thinking things were pretty, pretty awful. <laughs> but it's the only, you know, it's the only years you have. You know, it's you got no choice. I always feel a little out of place at these things, you know. You're telling me, you know, I'm being stalked by a Nazi. Is there a little bit of reefer smell on you, boy? Coach is right. You. I wanted to shoot this as if a teenager shot it, with the emphasis and as if I had film making skills back then, like what I thought was cool. So you open on a close-up of a joint being rolled or like I thought it'd be from a cool 17-year-old perspective, you know, 15 to 17-year-old perspective. I saw the whole thing like that. You know, I tried to get absolutely everything right in this movie to the period, but I got a letter from someone saying that the beer tap was actually from 79 or something. <laughs> Isn't that great? I said, well, if that's the worst of it. There might have been some other things, some little, some of the kids' bikes and everything, but I, I was just adamant, even to the point of if a song, I really wanted a Thin Lizzy song, and I used it for a while over the final credits, but uh, it had come out in July, so I couldn't use it. You know, it had to be out May 28th. So this right place, wrong time. Um, this is my kind of indirect homage to Mean Streets when... Um, Harvey Keitel's walking through, but instead of placing Wiley on, like, the dolly, I uh, put a string on him between the cameraman and Wiley to keep the focal length really exact so he looks like he's in some kind of weird state 
you know, just had him walk around. Like, again, so much of it's his perspective. I don't think any of the actors really picked up on it, except Adam Goldberg. He would be like, now, why did Wiley get a close-up there? And we didn't get close-up. They all treated Wiley like a little pet. You know, he was a little kid in the movie. And I don't think any of them really grasped that so much of the movie's from his perspective. But Adam, I think the future director in him, was kind of going, oh, he got a close-up. Why'd you, you know, you shot that. He was always a little suspicious. <laughs> yeah, it's a big ensemble, but... Why is Wiley getting a privileged little close-up here and there? I mean, we got a shot at state. I think Jason London doesn't get enough credit in this movie because he is that kind of everyman in the middle, but to me, he totally holds the movie together. I think he's wonderful. He was the perfect, smooth guy. I had a lot of trouble finding the pink character. Guys were either too much one way or another. He seemed, he was just so smooth. He was an excellent actor, a cool guy who would seem like a leader. He might be the quarterback of the team. Jason had played sports and everything. So, but without him, you really don't have a movie. You'd be fucking us up. This whole uh, dilemma was actually mine. You know, I moved um, my senior year, but I had been playing football. So I had this thing, and I actually did end up not playing football my senior year and just playing baseball. But I remember feeling the pressure from some of the football guys. So that's kind of, you know, articulated in, in that scene with Cole and Jason. The pratfall. Of course, Joey and Parker came up with this themselves. Joey was like, I want to fall down. And I'm like, okay, Joey, you can fall down. I was open for that. You know, of course someone falls at a beer bus and eats shit and dumps beer all over. Of course we'd do that. This was actually Mila's song. Mila was incredible. I mean, she was 16 years old. She already had an album. Pretty remarkable person. I always knew she'd have some interesting career about aliens. My biggest image for this movie, what really kicked it all off, was just, I guess as a filmmaker, not liking a lot of teen movies. Or you like them. I mean, you like The Breakfast Club and that kind of stuff. But you go, well, but it's not my teen movie. It's not my story. So as I thought, what's my story? Something was inside me of like, I wanted to make a teenage, like my teenage rock and roll movie about those years. I like the Tim Hunter-type edge movies, River's Edge, Over the Edge. I mean, a great teen movie is Over the Edge. A greater teen movie is If. Lindsay Anderson's If with Malcolm McDowell is a great teen movie. British, but very, very good. There's so many great teen movies. And the, the true, like Over the Edge and If, the ultimate teen movie ends with them firebombing the school or the headmasters or whatever, that you, you get full revenge and the whole place goes up in flames. That would be the true ending of a good teen movie, which I didn't really have that in Dazed. There wasn't, <laughs> the narrative wasn't really set up that way. But the closest I could come would be dumping pain on O'Bannon or, you know. <laughs> I, I didn't want to say, oh, there was this other era where people acted differently and it was, a, it was an innocent time before. It's like bullshit. This was the 70s. This was after the 60s, after all the assassinations, after the war. This was a highly cynical, highly suspicious, you know, things were just calming down a little bit. So it, it, it was post-lost innocence. So there was really nowhere to return to. You know, that's why the notion of nostalgia is such bullshit. You know, when these people want to go back to the 50s, it's like, what are you talking about? That's, are you crazy? You know, this, there's this delusion among a lot of Americans that the 50s were somehow wholesome and good. It's like, no, they weren't. I mean, what a horrible time. I don't know. You can't go back. 
it was very much high school, you know, cliques develop. Some people don't like other people. Jason London and Sean did not like each other. You know, it was kind of a tactical error on Sean's part to not get along with some of the lead guys in the movie, but he was sort of off in his own little space, and they're like, that doesn't work for the ensemble. But they didn't get along. And I'd pull them aside and say, hey, I don't care what you guys think about each other. It was sort of like a team. I was the coach saying, I don't care if you guys get along. We need to win the game, you know. So I was on that. It was tough. It was really difficult, these personalities. And, you know, they're all young and and kind of crazy. So, uh, I mean, they were all doing some crazy shit off camera, you know. Certainly they had paired off. And, you know, our one day off, we were shooting six-day weeks. Another thing I swore I'd never do again. But um, the clicks formed and... They all had a great time, but... About a year ago, three guys from my hometown of Huntsville, um, ones with the last names Slater, Floyd, and Wooderson, initiated a lawsuit against me, Universal, and everybody for, like, defamation, I think. <laughs> and it, it's kind of funny, like, back in my hometown, over these years, I'd heard about guys going around in that town saying, oh, that's me. There's a guy named Slater, who I swear to God, I think I might have gone to a concert with him. But all these guys who actually sued me were, were much older. I, I didn't really know him. Well, Slater was only one year older than me. The other two guys, one was my senior and one was out of high school. And I never was in a class. I didn't really know him. I knew their younger brothers a little better. But I think they were just kind of, it had been cool for a while to say, oh, yeah, that's me in that movie. But then they got older, they had kids, and apparently the guy, Wooderson, took his kid off to school in the East Coast. I think it was Harvard or something, which amazes me that Wooderson's kid would end up at Harvard. That's a whole nother movie. But um, he said when he got into the dorm room, some of the other kids asked if their dad was the guy from the movie, and, they, and then they wanted to smoke a joint with him or something. <laughs> so, yeah, call up your lawyer. But, uh, yeah, for, like, defamation of character or something. But... You know, you legally vet all these things where no one's first and last name was was the same. They weren't really based on on them to begin with. And not to mention, the entire film is fiction. <laughs> so you really don't have a chance on anything like that. The suit was, like, thrown out, like, immediately. But I did have to give a deposition. But uh, it was that was a little creepy. But... Someone asked the guy whose name is Keith Pickford, said, did you ever think about suing Linklater for using your name? And he was like, why the hell would I sue him, man? I've been like, <laughs> I've been using that story. You know how people would say I've been dining out on that story for years or whatever. So and I'm like, hey, yeah, that's the spirit. You know, that's kind of how it is. I hate that shit. It's like that clink fucker in front of all his friends. Huh? A motherfucker. All right. Okay, Mike. Dominant male monkey motherfucker. You got to have a fight. You can't have a teen movie and not have a, just a full-on brawl. But unlike his strategy that he theorized earlier, that they usually don't have, it's a punch or two, someone hits and people break it up. But he's miscalculated that everyone's actually in the mood to see a fight. So what you see here is uh, he doesn't have quite enough of a backup support group, or they're, they're not right there by him. Like Pink's a little slow getting there, his friends are a little slow. Tony didn't, he didn't say watch my back, so he made a tactical error. And then you got people like Cole here who are actually actively wanting to promote the fight and keep from breaking up. So he's made a big blunder. Hey, if you look very closely here at the moment, they pull him off. If you freeze your frame, you'll see Ben Affleck at the party. This is O'Bannon had come back to the party 
and I ended up cutting out his story here. But right when you pull out, it's right there. He's in all blue. But, you know, you, you'd see him for just a few frames. It's pretty funny. And, of course, there's O'Bannon holding back the, uh, the others. This, we went for it live. Nick and um, Adam just sort of went for it. It was, we did it, and it was real. Not the punching, of course. That was right off camera, some bag he was punching, but him tackling him down and all that. I wanted the Aerosmith song Dream On here, but there, I was lucky to get Sweet Emotion at the beginning, apparently. It cost fucking $100,000, but... But I wanted Dream On, but they had a different manager. I, I actually uh, got to meet Steven Tyler around the time of this film's release, and he apologized because, yeah, the guy who owned Dream On or something, yeah, that, they'd had trouble with the managers. You know, like, they wouldn't let us use it. But To the Rescue is always Leonard Skinner with Tuesday's Gone, which is a wonderful song. It, it, it fit the end of a party vibe, you know. So... That was the good thing about the music. There was the Led Zeppelin song I didn't get. All this stuff I didn't get. There was a Neil Young song I couldn't use. But thank God for this era. There was so much good music I could always... There was always a second and a third team right there waiting. So I can't really complain. But um, at the end of the line, the biggest compromises that were in my face was cutting a lot of music out of the movie because we didn't have... A record deal had fallen apart because I had refused to re-record modern bands playing old music like that was always just a taboo i was never gonna get any current bands to play old songs that was just no it's all original recordings from this period it was a period piece that was the rules and then i remember this kathy nelson at the record label was insistent she had done some soundtracks well unfortunately we need something to sell the album so you know, they went in the studio, they got a band to re-record, like, we're an American band, and they were going to make me put it in the movie to help sell the album, to get MTV interested, all this crap. And I just rejected all that. And that's when, you know, I was pretty much at war with the studio. And when I won that war by going to the band they were trying to get to re-record the song, and they dropped out, that's when Kathy Nelson in the studio, they dropped the album they dumped the, their own album and uh, kind of took it out on me, <laughs> you know. So, and then I was going to have to cut all the music from the, a lot of the music from the movie and put in 70s guitar licks, you know, kind of 70s sounding music for all this music we couldn't afford because I had fucked up the album deal. And all along I was saying, I think the album's going to do pretty well. You know, I think this is a lot of 70s music. It's an interesting compilation. I think people are going to see the movie and want to go buy the album. No, no. It needs a hook. It needs something that'll play on MTV now or it won't sell. And then, you know, of course, at the end of the day, I'm only telling the story because I win in the end. But, um, you know, the album's double platinum with no, you know, I didn't have to get a new band to re-record some old song. You know, like people did see the movie and, and go get the album. Not that I ever got one cent from it. Watch the leather, huh? <laughs> Matthew, man, he's just transcendent here. Look at this little face he gives as he revs up his car. He was like... <laughs> man. It's so funny that they would end up back at, at the place of your 
oppression, you know, if you're kind of a football player who's not sure what you want, that you would end up back on the football field. But that's kind of how it is, you know, in these towns. You, you end up back in your high school parking lot is where you have, you meet or hang out. You know, the place you're trying to get away from inevitably pulls you back. So I like the idea of it ending up at this point, you know, like back on the football field because that's, you know, that's a big place actually for them. But they're back there partying you know it's it's fun to just bring your off-field uh, life to it you know i think and you can make fun of your coaches and make fun of the whole situation and everything but it was hard tying up this movie i have to say it's so loose it's just all these character stories there's not much of a plot outside of this pink's issue with signing this you know form this oppressive form so i had to sort of end that story and I remember talking to Matthew about that. I was like, well, you know, what if you said something to him? Um, what could you do? I think we got to tell Pink something. You know, you're older. You're not, you know, maybe you could say something. So that was, uh, you know, Matthew's father sadly had passed away during production, like only a couple, maybe a week or two, a couple weeks before we were filming this. And, and I was just talking to Matthew about, well, what is that? What can we say that sums up, you know, what can you say to Pink, you know, about all that stuff? And he says, well, it's really, uh, it's about living, ain't it? And I go, yeah. He said, and that's where he had his whole L-I-V-I-N, you know, his own style of living, which is, you know, kind of Matthew's motto, you know, such a big part of his life, that L-I-V-I-N. So uh, <laughs> he just totally came up with that. But to tie up these stories, it's nothing too heroic, you know. There's Mike licking his wounds and kind of, again, thinking his way around it. I thought that was pretty funny, which is, eh, a few years from now, no one will remember, you know. <laughs> and this scene is, it's actually kind of sad with Tony and Sabrina. Like, it, as originally scripted, that's not even her house. Like, they leave and she walks back to her other house. But uh, I hope Tony appreciates that he actually got to kiss the girl and all that. Mike didn't get any girls this night, you know, so. <laughs> Not to indulge in any alcohol, drugs, sex after 12, or any other illegal activity. Right, my shadow. Later, baby. Found that in your glove compartment, So, in a way, I would have loved, I mean, for this movie not to have this little form. That was one, my one concession, I think. But, it, I mean, if that's the through line, if I needed that to get it, I mean, I mean, I kind of proposed that when they read the script and said, you know, there's just absolutely no story here. It's just character things that dwindle into nothingness. You know, I was like, well, <laughs> that's how life is. But to do a studio movie, I kind of concocted this as a sub-issue. But I stand behind it because, like I said, it was kind of the metaphor for everything. But it's still, you know, Matthew and I were talking about it. It's like, he's like, well, it's kind of your MacGuffin, isn't it? And I go, yeah, you know, it's something. The film student in Matthew, yeah, the MacGuffin. But, you, you know, you want to close it out and make it work, you know, so. We've had a lot of really good times right here, Pink. Yeah, I mean, come on, Pink. I can't believe this. You act like you're so oppressed. Then you guys are kings of the school. You get away with whatever you want. What are you bitching about? Well, look, I mean, all I'm saying is that if I ever start referring to... This sentiment here, like, was actually my own. I remember my senior in high school 
some teacher was giving me shit. It wasn't, you know, and I've been told my whole life, oh, yeah, that's the greatest year of your life. I had coaches say, your senior year of high school is the best year of your life and all that. And I was going, I'm not happy my senior year. I don't, I mean, yeah, you've got that seniority and you're this, that, but I, I don't like being in the institution. I don't like the school. I don't like you telling me what to do. If this is great, then, I mean, I think if you just go to work the rest of your life and that, that maybe it, you look back on that fondly, but I was... I remember even as a youngster taking like just kind of emotional memory moments saying, this sucks, you know, I don't like being in school. I don't like all this. So I was, I actually told someone that at the time, like, if this is the best year of my life, remind me to kill myself. So I was always going to be one of those not looking back fondly or like, oh, that was a great time. And it's like, yeah. And I hope this movie reflects that it's, you know, mixed feelings at best. And I even... I had friends like, what do you, you what do you have an axe to grind? You've kind of got it good, you know. And, you know, I was, you know, athlete, okay student, you know, all that. I was probably in the upper tier of people you say, oh, he must be having a good time in high school. But I really wasn't. So, you know, and I said, well, if I'm not, if I'm kind of tortured and terrorized and have this what's everybody else thinking so that was sort of my working premise was these aren't the best years of your life these are in a way them they're important but they're they're very difficult you know the seals and i had this in my mind all the way it's just like okay as the sun comes up he's listening to seals and crofts it was, it was fun to actually shoot this you know it was like recreating like an exact moment You know, being up all night. And I was just like, no. Floyd, Dawson, get your scrawny butts over here. And of course, in a small town, every time you, you go wrong, they let the coach know about it. Like, he's your central authority. So, uh, this actually happened to me. I had been busted um, on a field in high school, but it was the college field, but I knew the college coach. And you know, the coach coaches found out about everything and he had to kind of answer for it. And it was like, oh, do you have to drag in every authority in my life? Then you have your parents to deal with, too. So it was kind of good natured. Usually the cops would let you slide if you were a football player off certain things. But they kind of like the seniors with the freshmen, they would single you out and then like make a big deal of letting you slide a little bit. But this is the confrontation, the final little thing with Pink. And really, up to this end, I didn't really know what Pink was going to do. I mean, we didn't, it wasn't really scripted. And it was like, well, are you going to sign it? I mean, really, really, during the shoot, it was like, are you going to sign it? And, and finally, Jason and I looked at each other. It's like, how about you probably will play? I think Jason kind of came to the conclusion he'll play next year. He's just not going to sign that. And it's up to the coaches. You know, so he kind of puts it back in his lap. I may play ball. And that was sort of what Jason and I came to because we weren't really sure, like, what would be the thing? Not sign it and quit the team? Not sign it? You know, what do you do? But I, I kind of liked it. He's like, yeah, no, I'm going to play. He's like, no, I'm going to play next year. I'm just not going to sign that. And they're going to have to get used to it. So I'm like, okay, that's that's cool. That was, seemed like the strongest. I'm getting my third win. Let's get on the road. Matthew. Catching my third wind. <laughs> I've heard people still say that. You know, it's fun to hear a line or something from your movie kind of thrown around. So that's that, huh? 
we were really lucky this morning because, you know, I've got all these scenes to do. And if the sun had come up normal, I would have direct sunlight. And, you know, here it is, a dawn kind of scene. But it was one of the last days we filmed and there was like a hurricane brewing or something. And it was totally overcast that morning. That's when I knew the film gods were kind of with me. It was totally overcast this morning. And it just stayed at that, that light stayed that way for several hours and enabled me to shoot the whole scene. I didn't know what I was going to do otherwise. You know, had all that coverage to get. We had one morning, like, like everything in this movie, we had like one, two hours to get everything, you know, pages of dialogue. So I really needed about 42 days to shoot it. Of course, everything on this movie, oh, you need 42 days? Okay, you got 36. Oh, you need 7 million? Okay, you got six. Oh, you need so much for that? Okay, you just they, I got 70% of what I wanted, always. So. <laughs> this is sort of based on the first time I came back from a high school beer bus my freshman year drunk. My mom thought it was funny and kind of let me off the hook. The subsequent times, she's <laughs> it wasn't quite so funny, but she had some friends over and they all were amused at, that I had gone out, and, you know. But uh, that, that ended kind of quickly. You just go to your room and they give you some shit, you know. It's my brief helicopter shot, my first helicopter shot. Again, I said I wanted a helicopter shot and they all laughed at me. They wouldn't give me, I said, that's the end of the movie, you know. Everybody just laughed at me. I mean, I was not taken serious as a director on this movie. Everything I said, it was like, oh, how cute. He wants a helicopter shot. I'm like, no, I, I really do want a helicopter. That's what I have in my head. That's the last image of the car going down the highway. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. But finally, I got it in post-production, that and some other shots I didn't get during production. So the open road. So needless to say, this movie tested terribly because it didn't have a good ending, you know? Like, what do you think about the ending of this movie? And like, what ending? Ain't no fucking ending. So it tested horribly, so that's when the studio pretty much, you'd watch the movie with a test audience. This is the downside of making a studio film. We'd watch the film with an audience, and they would laugh and applaud and have a great time, and the cards would come back poor. You know, it was test, tested poorly. So those audience at those test things more or less killed this film for being a wide release and then we just got marginalized so it was kind of a studio production studio production with an independent release sort of the worst of both worlds but um, I wanted to do this where you see all the cast because mainly I wanted people to get to really know these people more than anything I was so like I loved them all so much it's amazing the people I didn't use in this movie in casting, I met, like, every actor you've heard of, <laughs> practically, of this age range. And uh, some of them were so good, but they, you know, in picking an ensemble, you just go body types and who's different. And, you know, so you you don't use some, some people, even though they're very good. I remember, for me, it was between, like, Vince Vaughn and, or Cole Hauser for, uh, for Benny's part. And I... Vince Vaughn was great. He actually nailed the audition, maybe a, a better than Cole. But he was similar to Ben Affleck in a way, similar tall guy, dark-haired, you know, and Cole was just different. You know, there's no one like Cole Hauser. And not that there's anyone really like, you know, Vince Vaughn and Ben are different, but they, it, for this movie, they would be kind of similar. Two guys who were like 6'4", and, and so I kind of went with Cole, you know. 
But it comes down to things like that, you know. Terry Moross, the, the coach, when I first met him, he came in on audition. I said, uh, what's your name? He goes, I'm Coach Clement. In my script, it was Coach Clements, but in the movie, it's Coach Conrad. I wrote it because I actually played for a guy, Coach Clements, who wasn't near as bad as this guy. So Coach Clements, if you're out there listening to this, he knows I had a lot of respect for him. But it's easy to tweak up the coaches a little bit. <laughs> but he, he wasn't like that at all. He was much more quiet and a good coach. Originally, I had um, Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll. That song was going to be my closing credit song, but I didn't get the... You know, Zeppelin never lets their songs, really, in movies, and they wouldn't... Well, at that point, Page and Plant weren't getting along so well, apparently, on certain levels. So Page said yes. I sent him a video of me pleading for the song and showed the use in the movie and he approved it. He says that he saw how it worked with, you know, the director's vision of the movie and I was really flattered. And then Plant just kind of because Paige said yes, I think Plant just said no. So I was I was so hurt, you know. And I really wanted that song. How can you have a teenage rock and roll movie from 76 and not have Led Zeppelin, you know? I even have the name Dazed and Confused, not my le- favorite by any means Led Zeppelin song, but I like the, the name, you know. So we didn't get anything. I was just kind of pissed. I ended up in a, a real minor feud with Robert Plant. I'd written a diary and wrote some nasty things about him. Not that I ever met the guy. I was just so hurt. It's little things like that. You just get your heart set on something and it gets denied you. This whole movie was just a series of denials. <laughs> denied from Schlitz, denied from Sonic, denied from McDonald's, denied from Led Zeppelin. I'm surprised this movie even seems real. Well, you make do. It's always got to have a plan B. You know, make it work somehow. I think at the end of the day, I mean, I got everything I wanted within reason, you know, on the music. I got my film out of it. I got my cast. I, I felt the film is uncompromised in that way. And maybe because it's uncompromised, you know, I, I like the film. It's the film I set out to make. And I had a good time doing it. And it's, for me, it's a success on that level of my expectations and what I was setting out to do. It ultimately wasn't embraced by the studio that funded it, and it wasn't distributed widely and all that. And the audience it's picked up over the years has been on, you know, video and that. It, I think it made about $8 million, which is, you know, that's perfectly fine. It cost $6 million, it made 8 you know, whatever. That's not some huge bomb or anything. It just... I guess I had delusions going in that I wanted this to play in theaters like in the towns it's set. And I wanted it to go out as a wide studio. You know, making a studio film, I thought it'd get a wide release. But I guess I shouldn't have been, you know, <laughs> that was a first, you know, kind of awakening to the industry that, oh, you can't get it all, you know, but. I realized I was going to get out with my film that I could do that. So I got out alive with the film I wanted. 